This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. This morning I'm going to tell you a story about a patient of mine when I used to work in the hospital. I was called to the hospital to evaluate a patient, and I used to be a psychiatric assessment counselor, and the emergency room doctors would call us in when they had a patient that needed to be evaluated because there was nothing necessarily medically, physically wrong with the person, but they were concerned about uh, what else might be wrong with this person. So I was called in by the doctor, and he asked me to see this guy. He said, I don't think there's anything wrong with him. The blood works fine. Everything has come back fine. He looks good, but he came in. He just doesn't feel right. And before we send him home, I think he's fine, but would you mind taking a look at him? So I did. I went over, which I, I did all the time, and I would get, went through my typical evaluation. I asked him questions like, who are you and where are you and do you know what day it is and what state you're in and all those kinds of things just to make sure that he was tracking with reality, and he was. He was completely oriented. Uh, he felt fine. Obviously, there was nothing physically wrong that they'd been able to find, but he just didn't feel like Everything was okay. So I noticed in his chart, his name was Scott. That's not his real name, but that's going to be his name today. I noticed in his chart that Scott had a mental health counselor in the city system. So I got the phone number of this counselor, and I called him. And this counselor was a very kind, very compassionate man. He had spent many years with Scott, and he told me that Scott was a great patient. He was a very compliant patient, but he was a, and had had a, diagnosis of schizophrenia for many, many years. And he was uh, following all of his treatment protocols and doing the things he was supposed to be doing. But he said, if Scott is in the emergency room, there's something bothering him. Ask him this question about the people who are trying to harm him. So he gave me a key question to ask Scott. Now, I had gone through the evaluation The doctor had gone through an evaluation. We had seen absolutely nothing wrong with this guy. But the minute I asked this one question, and he recognized that I knew about the conspiracy, he told me what was really going on. He told me about all the people that were trying to harm him. And he pulled out, he he had a badge. He was part of this secret organization, and there were various things. Now, none of this had come out until I asked him that specific question. See, he had a mindset issue. He had two worlds of thought going on in his head. They were at war within him. The war was between reality, what the doctor and I were seeing, and this alternate world that Scott lived in. His counselor was working hard to help him live in reality, and he was very good at responding. Obviously, he had fooled us. He was functioning quite well. He was able to handle life. He actually even had a job. But at certain points... He really demonstrated that he really believed that his alternate world was reality, was the real world. And this was what was happening on this particular day. He'd become very good, according to all that his his counselor had told him, at playing a part in reality. But all the time, he really believed and he was deeply invested in this alternate world that was at war in his mind. The therapist had been very successful at helping Scott to perform and to function in reality, in our world. But he'd been unable to change Scott internally. Scott still believed that his alternate world was the real world, and that he had to play along with his training just in order to survive in his therapist's world, and in the doctor's world, and in my world, in reality. In his mind and heart, though, he, through his passionate pursuit, through all the things that he did, including getting a special badge and all these various things that he had done, he demonstrated that what he really believed, where his mind was set, was was in this alternate world. So the therapist had trained him to respond to reality, but he was still living over here. The therapist had no power to change him internally. He was able to help him on the outside, but not on the inside. He believed in his world, but he learned very reluctantly to live among those who did not believe what he believed or understand what he understood. Inwardly, he felt compelled 
there was a compelling force that directed him to live in his world. Today, what we're going to learn is that God does not want us to live one way while really thinking, feeling, believing, being compelled to live as if something else is true and real. He doesn't want us living with a split mind, which is what schizophrenia is. It's a split mind. He wants us to live, as Paul will tell us in Philippians 2, with one mind. He wants us to have the one mind. He wants to change us, unlike the therapist, unlike the counselor, unlike me and the doctor, who are unable to change this man. He wants to change us on the inside so that God's reality becomes our reality. He wants us to live in the world that's really real. Jesus came to fulfill many roles. One of them was an ambassador. He was an ambassador. He came as a servant of another kingdom, of another world. And he came to help us to understand what that world was about. But he also came as a savior. Unlike me, unlike the counselor, unlike the doctor, Jesus, the savior, has the power to transform us, to change our mindset, to take us from believing this to believing what's really true. He wants us to live as citizens of a different kingdom, as we've heard, as citizens of his kingdom, and he wants to change us from within so we don't just pretend to live in that kingdom, but we actually believe with all of our heart. Our mind is set on this new kingdom. So let's pray, and then we're going to read our passage for this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are delving this morning into things that are way beyond my pay grade and way beyond our ability in any way to understand. We are going to be looking into the mind of God this morning. We're looking at your word. Every word that proceeds from your mouth is how we live and what we live by. So Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. There have been so many down through the centuries that have not been given ears to hear, but you've given us ears to hear. Lord, increase our ability to hear this morning. Give us eyes that see what's true and real about you and about your kingdom and about how we are now to act and walk and live in that kingdom. Change our minds, Lord. Change our mindset, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Ephesians chapter 2, Rob preached last week from Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I'm going to read that passage again because it connects very importantly in important ways to the passage uh, 5 through 11 that we're going to look at primarily today. Ephesians 2, I mean, sorry, Philippians 2. Yeah, we're in the wrong book. We read it. From Colossians earlier, and I'm going to get you into Ephesians. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord And of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Lord, help us. Help us to hear you. Verse 5 reads this way in the ESV. Have this mind among yourselves. In the footnote, if you look in your ESV Bible, I'm reading from the ESV this morning. This is a very difficult word because it is not a noun. It's a verb. So it's... It's a, it's a word that means think, but it means more than think. And I'm going to spend just a couple minutes going over some technical things, because in order to grasp this passage, you need to understand exactly what Paul is saying, and English just doesn't do it justice here. So he says, the, the ESV says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or the footnote says, which was also in Christ Jesus. One of those two, there's a debate about that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is what the New American Standard Bible, so a different group of translators said, have this attitude, have this mind. The NIV says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Literally, this verse says, this think, this think, feel, believe among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This think, but think in terms of mindset. Set your mind this way. Set your mind the same way that was in Christ Jesus. That's what it's saying. It's difficult to translate in English. It's a verb. It's an action word. And if we, if we let it just be, have this mindset, we lose the action. There's action involved in this thinking. It's, it's moving forward, and we need to see that as we go through it. It doesn't mean, here's some quotes, the word does not mean to think in the sense of cogitate. How many of you have used the word cogitate in a sentence in the last two weeks? Okay. Rather, it carries the nuance of setting one's mind on, thus having a certain disposition towards something or a certain way of looking at things. Think of my friend in the hospital. He had a mindset. It drove him to do the things that he was going to do. That's what Paul's getting at here. The word uh, implies moral interest or reflection. So it's not just an idea. There's moral interest in it. There's passion behind this word. Another dictionary says it means to think or feel or be concerned about someone, to set one's mind on, to be intent on, to have thoughts or attitude or be minded or disposed towards something, to develop a mindset. That's what this means. Well, we have to work all the way around it to have this one, this one word in Greek. It's the same word back in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, when Paul said, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. It's the same word. So it, it has this meaning of, of pressing forward. It's a verb. It's action. So think of it that way. It's the same word that's at the root of schizophrenia. Phreneo is the Greek word. It's mind. Split mind. And God's calling us here to one mind. Okay? So it's the same word. In, two, in chapter 2, verse 2, which we just read, Paul says, be of one mind. In other words, mind this. Be this one mind. Set your mind in this one thing. That's what he's saying in verse 2. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So, as we move forward, try to keep all that in your head, which I've been trying to do in my head, which was just, I, I, it started to explode multiple times this week. I'm going to use the term, set your mind, in, in place of that. So there's action there. Set your mind. Be disposed toward, but think all these things. It's attitude, it's passion, it's movement forward. It's, this, it's the setting of your mind that takes you somewhere. That's what Paul is saying. Think this. Set your mind this way, like Jesus did. That's what the command is in verse 5. So we're going we're gonna to look at this. I believe this passage teaches us this, this. God wants us to set our minds on Jesus and then to set our minds like Jesus so that we can live from the mindset of Jesus. He wants us to set our minds on Jesus. That's the first thing in order that we can then set our minds like Jesus so that finally we can live from the mindset of Jesus. And I know that's complex, but this is a complex word. We're going to make three points, the first one being the most important. Three points today, setting our minds on Jesus, setting our minds like Jesus, 
and then living from the mindset of Jesus, those three points. So the first point is setting our minds on Jesus. And for those of you that are outliners, there are going to be four subpoints. So there's an A, B, C, D in this. So just so you know, if you like taking notes this way, I don't want you to get confused. Uh, setting our minds on Jesus. And here is where it was just a worshipful week for me. And I hope that the Lord just draws you in. This, this, we, are get, we are having the privilege this morning of looking into the mind of God in eternity past, right now. Here's what he says. Who, though he was in the form of God, this is Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you have been given through the Apostle Paul insight into the mind of Jesus before anything was created. Here's his consideration. Here's his thinking. Here's his mindset. Here's how his mind was set. I'm God. But I'm not going to grasp my godness. That's what this means. So this is the, this is the pre-incarnate, eternal God, the creator of the universe, and in this Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, here's what he was thinking. I'm God. But I don't need to grasp that. I exist in the form of God. That word form there means that which is truly characteristic of a person. In other words, he was completely God. It's not the form like we might think of it. This word just means he was God. In every conceivable way. He was the essence, the essential God at that point. This is the one who is saying, I don't need to grasp, lay hold of, for my own benefit, these things. He didn't consider or count equality with God something to be grasped. That means he didn't want to seize it for his own advantage. He wasn't taking his godness and saying, how can I have this benefit me? This is how he's thinking. Think, evaluate. These are the considerations of the God of the universe before any of us came to be, before the world came to be. My Godness, which is complete, is not something that I need to grasp or hold on to for my own benefit. Think about the considerations of Jesus. Just pause and realize what we're reading here. This is the mind of God that Paul is opening to us. So he's saying to us, set your minds like this, like Jesus. Here's how he thought. I am fully God. I'm the essence of God. But I don't need to grasp that. That's how Jesus thinks. So that's the first sub-point that we set our mind, and we look at the mindset of Jesus. So we're setting our mind on Jesus. Let's look at the actions of Jesus. That was what he was thinking. What did he do as a result of that? Because remember, this is a verb. It's active. It's not just a, a noun thinking about something abstract in his head. It's a, it's a word that leads to action. So as God, Gordon Fee writes, as God, he emptied himself. Okay. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out. Doesn't mean that he stopped being God. We can read the Gospels and recognize that Jesus, throughout his time here, knew. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He knew he was God. He did not give up his godness. He emptied himself of the privileges of being God. He didn't hold on to it for his own sake. Because there was, a, there was a different mission that he was coming to pursue. He emptied himself. He, he left all of the glory that he deserved, that was rightfully his, that he endlessly received from angels, from all these created beings, from the universe, from the, the heavens that proclaim his glory, from the creation. He emptied himself of all of that. 
And he took the form. It's the same word. So just as he was in the form of God, the essential being of God, he took the form of a servant. He wasn't just play acting. He actually became the servant. His essence was the servant. He was fully God and he was fully the servant that we read about in Isaiah 42. And you can go there sometime and read, Behold, my servant. That's who he became. So he became fully the servant of God. And in that, as he becomes a slave, as he puts on and becomes the slave of God, as God, he empties himself and becomes the slave of God. He is born in the likeness of men. All of this happened on the heavenly side of the equation. Then there's a transition in our text, and we go to the earthly perspective. Next sentence, and being found in human form, which is now a different word. This word means outward appearance. And it's a different word uh, that a lot of the commentators believe because, not because Jesus didn't fully become a man, but because he was more than a man. He held on to his godness, and he took full humanity, and he was both. So he was more than a man, but he was fully a man. He was all man and all God at the same time. So he, he, was, he took on, he came found in human form, which this outward appearance, from man's perspective, all they saw was man. This is why he was killed, ultimately, from human perspective. You, being a man, call yourself the Son of God. It's blasphemy. So all they could see with unenlightened eyes was he's a man. He's in the form of a man. How could he be anything else? They didn't know what we know today. They didn't have insight into the mind of the, God, of the Creator who said, I'm God. I won't grasp it. I'll become the slave. And I'll be born in human likeness and take the form of a man. So as God, he emptied himself. And then as man, he humbled himself. That's what the text says. As God emptied himself of all that was right, of all that he should have had, of all that belonged to him, became poor, Paul says, so that we could become rich. As man, he humbled himself, and his humility knew no bounds. He humbled himself to death, and not just any death, death of a cross. Here's the Philippian church, Roman colony. To them, the cross was the crudest of profane symbols. They wouldn't even talk about it. No one in the early church wore a cross, by the way. It was profanity. You think of the worst profane symbol or word you can think of. That's what they equated the cross to. It was horrible. So he went from the highest of heights with millions of angels singing his praises with all of the creation glorying in him to the most horrid, ugly, unbelievably debased death. Death on a cross. So see, see this parallel structure in heaven and on earth. Form of God, truly God, he emptied himself. Form of a man, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, from the highest place to the lowest. So the third thing we want to think about as we set our minds on Jesus so again, this is the third sub-point for you, you folks that like to do that kind of thing. We want to look at the heart and character of Jesus as it's revealed in his thinking and in his actions. From the beginning of human history, the enemies of God have sought to defame him. You think about the garden. What did Satan do right from the beginning? Did God really say? Is God really good? Does God really want what's best for you? Or is he out for himself? Is he withholding things from you? It's always been that way. From eternity past, the enemies of God want to cause you to have a split mind. 
about God. They want you to look at this, but believe this. It continues today. It's no different. Paul talks about in the book of Romans that we, the enemies of God, try to suppress the truth, and so often we do this as well. We suppress the truth about God through our ungodliness, through, through our double-mindedness, through living in two worlds, through the way that we act or believe. But unbelievers, this is what they do. They suppress, they press down the truth about God. They don't want the heart and character of God to be revealed because if it is, the only response is what we're going to read about in a few minutes. They've sought to say things like, God is not just, or God is not good, or God is not powerful, or even more today, there's a whole movement once again. It comes back around. There is no God. Huge atheistic movement out there today. There is no God. And there's no explanation for anything. So your life means nothing, and your death means nothing, and what you do means nothing. And God would say, not true. Everything means something. So we look today as we're setting our minds on Jesus. Look at Jesus and you see God. God is like this. God thinks like this. God acts like this. From eternity past, the eternal Son of God, who is God himself, has been humble. He's a humble God. Wrap your head around that. God didn't just become humble. He is eternally humble. He's self-sacrificial from eternity past. He's loved his enemies from eternity past. He's not a grasper. He's not one that seizes glory for himself. He's not in pursuit of vain glory or empty glory something that Paul had just told the Philippians to renounce. Jesus has never pursued empty glory or self-glorification. He's not moved or motivated by self-interest, but by the glory of the Father and the good of his brothers and sisters. That's what moves him. He's self-sacrificing. He counts others, you and me, as more significant. doesn't mean we are more significant, but he counts, he thinks of us, He acts in such a way that demonstrates his heart. They and their needs are more significant than me and my needs. He counts us as more important, assuring that the needs of others are met at his own expense. The cross, this disgusting symbol that he willingly gave himself to and despised the shame of it, the writer of Hebrews said. He took that on. In eternity past. Behold your God. This is his character. So I wrote this week, I beg you, don't allow another view of God to distort your vision. Think about Jesus. As you think about Jesus, you're thinking about God. See him, Lord, By your mercy, give us eyes to see you as you really are. Please don't continue to live with a split mind. We're all born schizophrenic. Gordon Fee writes, Equality with God, Paul begins, is something that that was inherent to Christ in his preexistence. Nonetheless, God-likeness, contrary to common understanding, did not mean for Christ to be a grasping, seizing being, as it would for the gods and the lords whom the Philippians had previously known. It was not something to be seized upon to his own advantage, which would be the normal expectation of lordly power. Rather, his equality with God found its truest expression when he emptied himself in the cross, in the cross, God's true character, his outlandish, lavish expression of love was fully manifested by his own choice. He went from the highest place where he should be, it's his absolute right, it's right for him to be there, to the lowest possible place. Do you know this God? 
behold your God. And then lastly, under this first point of setting our minds on Jesus, let's set our minds on the exaltation of Jesus. Reading the passage again, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and that therefore means this, because of his thinking and his actions, because of his mindset, because of him emptying himself, because of his humility and his servanthood and his obedience unto death on a cross, God has highly exalted, and Paul creates a new word right here. It's never been used ever before. He hyper-exalted him. Because of this, therefore, God has highly exalted him, hyper-exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we've seen, we've talked about his pre-existence. We've talked about his incarnation. In this passage, you see his death and his burial, and then his exaltation, his resurrection by the power of God. Paul said to the Roman church, he was declared once and for all to be the Son of God with power through his resurrection from the dead. He's always been the Son of God. That didn't change who he was, but there was a declaration to the universe that all that he said as he came in the likeness of man, we saw him as a man. We beheld him as a man, but when God raised him from the dead... The universe saw this is the Son of God. And he is exalted. And he he was raised. And people watched him go up to the heavens. And the angels spoke to them and said, This Jesus, who you see departing from you, will return in the same way. But it will be a very different coming. The second time. And what he's doing now is he's seated at the right hand of God. He's praying for us. He's praying that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. He's praying for all those who belong to him but have not yet seen and not yet heard and are still living with a split mind. God the Father has determined that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. The Lord, meaning Yahweh, The name of God that the Jews found so holy that they refused to speak it. They had symbols for it. They did not speak this name, but the Lord is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Imagine this speech in a culture, in a Philippian culture, where they're required to say Caesar is Lord. And yet here we're saying above every name. Above the name of Caesar, above the name of you, above whatever thing you think you thought, the highest place you could attain, above the name of all the kings, the Nebuchadnezzars and all of the other kings, the pharaohs of Egypt, who have ever lived or ever will live, his name is above every one of those. His name is Yahweh, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Every knee should bow, and as we know, every knee will bow. The question is, When and why will our knees bow before this one who has been declared by God to be God for eternity past, eternity future, forevermore, worthy of all worship from everything, those beings above the earth, all of the angels, those beings on the earth, that's us, still alive, those beings under the earth, fallen angels, People who currently are asleep, are dead, are waiting for the return of Jesus. Some to eternal death and some through faith to eternal life. All of those creatures will bow the knee. When and why will it happen? So the second point, and that, these will be much shorter, but the second point is that we want to, having set our minds on Jesus, Paul is exhorting us, Like Jesus, set your mind this way. This, set your mind on. This, think. 
This be passionate about. This fill your heart and mind and soul with so that your actions come from this. This is what I want you to set your mind like Jesus. Have this mindset or attitude. This think or believe with all of your heart. Just like my friend, the schizophrenic, really with all of his heart, he believed that his reality was the reality. Even though he dabbled in our reality, but with all of his heart, he knew that people were out to get him. Okay? God wants to change us from that. He has the power to transform us. Note how all the things that Paul encouraged the Philippians to do and think are things that Jesus has always thought and always done. Okay, this takes us right back to chapter 1, verse 27. Live worthily as citizens of this kingdom. There's, there's the first command here. Philippians, live worthily as citizens of this new kingdom. How do we do that? Then he goes on in chapter 2. He says, literally, setting your mind on the same thing, having the same love, being in harmony of soul, and setting your mind on the one thing. That's literally what he's saying. There's one thing to think about. And it's at this, it's this one man, this one person at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's the one thing. It's him. And it's setting our mind on him. And it's living out of that mindset. That's the one thing that Paul is talking about. So Jesus is put forward by Paul in this one instance as the supreme example of what it means to have the right kind of mindset. See the parallel. Jesus didn't grasp what was rightfully his, but he emptied himself. We're called not to grasp, not to be looking for vainglory, not to be looking to exalt ourselves. We're called not to grasp something that's not ours anyway, but to humble ourselves. He went from here to here. He's asking us to go from here to here. You see that? He's done what we could not do so that we can now do through him what he's calling us to do. This is possible. These commands are doable because one greater than me and that therapist is here. He is able to change our thinking and change our mindsets. Instead of grasping for your rights or some kind of empty glory or selfish ambition, setting your mind for Je- on Jesus and setting your mind like Jesus prepares you to live in the same way that Jesus lived. He refused to grasp what was rightfully his. We can refuse to grasp all of these things that don't belong to us anyway. And as he emptied himself and took on the very nature of a slave to rescue us and to serve us, we too can determine to humble ourselves, count others and their needs as more significant than ourselves and more significant than our needs. I remember the first time that I realized I was a schizophrenic in God's view. I don't have the medical condition of that, but I certainly had the spiritual condition. I was in second grade. Remember this vividly. And I had two friends that were a year older than me, and I thought they were the greatest thing in the world. Man, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to have their mindset. I wanted them to like me. I desired the glory that came from these wonderful third graders at the time. And so I was willing to do whatever it took to be like them. And I remember one day, these were guys that came from families that were not Christian, and I'd been brought up in the church, and I knew the gospel, and I believe, looking back now, that I was actually regenerated at that time, but I used the name of the Lord of God in vain with them in order to get them to like me so that I would fit in to their world, and I would be appreciated, and I remember God just... It must have been just a tiny, tiny bit of what Peter felt. I remember just being struck to the heart. At my double-mindedness, at my split mind. And I went out and I just, I, I sat behind this bush at a neighbor's yard for a long time and I just prayed, Lord, please forgive me for that. 
I didn't have a clue what was going on. I didn't know anything about minds or set mindsets or anything like that. I was not any kind of a special kid or anything along those lines. But God, in his mercy, opened my eyes to see that was not the real world. Don't want that. How many times since then have I given in to the same split thinking? Don't be split-minded. The third point. So we talked about setting our minds on Jesus. That's the most important thing. So that we can set our minds like Jesus. And then thirdly, so that we can live, living from the mindset of Jesus. This passage presents, as I said, Jesus as the supreme example. Paul is using Jesus as an example. He's not just an example, but he certainly is an example. He's more than an example, as we'll talk about in a minute. But he is also an example. We're called to imitate him. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So there is this culture in the church among believers of imitation that we need to pursue being like him. That's what this command is. Be like him in your thinking, in your actions, in your passions. Be like Jesus. That's exactly what he's commanding us to do. We see in chapter 1 Paul's example. His life, now we've got to be careful here, his, it's an echo. It's a faint echo or an example of what it means to live from the mindset of Jesus. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He got it. He knew the one thing. He was joyful in prison because the gospel was being proclaimed in prison. He was joyful in the proclamation by the gospel, even by those who were seeking to do him harm and had evil motives. He understood. His mind was set on the one thing, Jesus being proclaimed. Jesus being glorified, knees bowing, tongues confessing. He was fixed on that. Later in this letter, we're going to see how Paul will point to Timothy as another example of one who's living with this kind of mindset clearly in view in his actions. He's setting his mind on the way that Jesus thought and on the way that Jesus lived. And what about us? What does this passage require of us if we're going to be doers of the word and not hearers only? I think it requires, and this is the command in verse 5, set your mind this way. That's the requirement of this. Well, th- what way? The way that he's already f- referred to. Not with selfish ambition. Not for vain glory. But in humility, counting others as more important than yourselves. In humility, looking at the needs of others and saying, I'm going to count their need and treat their need as if it's more important than my need. That's how I'm going to do it. I can do that because I'm a believer, because I know that for me to die is gain, so I can live for others just as Jesus did. This mindset of Jesus encourages us now for us who have bowed the knee to joyfully bow the knee every day to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? My eternity is set. I know God wants us to set our minds on Jesus. I'm doing that. And to set our minds like Jesus. Lord, I'm seeking to do that. Help me in my weakness so that I can live, I can actually do, I can be like Jesus in my actions. Therefore, look for every opportunity to exalt Jesus, to live in reality as defined by God and to humble yourself and look for the interests of others. Husbands, we just had this marriage retreat this weekend, the marriage conference, setting your minds on Jesus. So that's the first and most important thing, fixing your gaze there and then setting your mind like Jesus for your wife. How can you sacrifice the privilege? Now be careful, not the responsibility, but the privileges of leadership and authority to be a slave this week Where can you today empty yourself and live like Jesus with understanding and compassion and tender-hearted affection? How can you represent this God to your wife so that your kids see and the world sees today? You can, if you're a believer, if there's any affection, any encouragement, any sympathy. If God has touched you and he lives in you, You can do that. Parents, setting your mind on Jesus and setting your mind like Jesus for your children. 
sacrificing the privileges of the adult world to enter their world. It's hard to play childish games and read childish books and make up childish stories and dream childish dreams with them. Yet Jesus' mindset caused him to leave where he should have been and enter our world. How can you do that with your kids? He did that so that he could eventually take us to the real world and out of the world of make-believe. Community group members, setting your mind on Jesus ahead of time and setting your mind like Jesus for others, praying ahead of the meeting, coming to your meeting, walking through the door, having prayed for every member of your group and thinking, where is a need that is, I'm going to count as more significant than mine? Who's lonely here? Who needs to be asked out to coffee here? Who needs somebody to pray for him today? And who was that word for that I got the other night when I was praying and I thought, you know, I think this is for somebody in our group and needs encouragement. Who is this for? My, I'm thinking like Jesus. My needs are taken care of by my Father just as Jesus' needs were. I'm thinking like him. I'm setting my mind like him. I want to live like him. As you come Sunday morning, it's the same thing. Setting your mind on Jesus Setting your mind like Jesus. What can you do? Who can you greet? How can you reach out to the, the new person when you just absolutely feel like the most awkward thing in the world and you don't know how to do it? You can go talk to Bob and let him rub his hands on you and, and he'll, it'll all rub off. It's like fairy dust. It comes. It'll come on you. Ask for help. Reach out to the new people. Reach out to the elderly. Reach out to the people that you don't know. Reach out to the people that you do know and say, how can I pray for you today? But thinking like Jesus, who emptied himself, who humbled himself to death, death on a cross. Where do you need to die to self today to live like Jesus? And remember that this is all to be lived out in community. He said, have this mindset, get this mindset among yourselves It's all a part of the community. It's not an individualistic thing. We do this together. And then out in the world, I want to challenge you one time this week, one time, to go to some place that you always go. Go to Kroger or Starbucks or wherever it is that you like to go. And I want you to ask the Lord specifically for an opportunity to empty yourself and and be His hands and His feet. That's what we're being commanded to do. Have this mindset. Live out of this mindset. So is there a checker person? Is there somebody that you always see at the restaurant that you need to just reach out and find out what their name is this week? Is there somebody that is across your backyard fence that you've greeted, but you need to have a deeper conversation? You need to push that relationship a little further. Is there somebody that you maybe have ministered to in the past that you might want to follow up with? What will the Spirit of God, who led Jesus through all of his earthly interactions, what will he lead you to do? And then when you do that, come back and tell your family. Testify. Come back and tell your small group. Come back and tell us, look what God did. Look what God is doing. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. So I want to make one final point to unbelievers Notice that these commands are not given in isolation. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, it presupposes that, you're, that the audience is Christian. There's already a work of the Spirit going on. Don't try to put on Jesus, to act like Jesus, to use Jesus as an example. If Jesus has not first become one that you've bowed your knee to, there is no power in you to imitate Jesus. There is power given by the Holy Spirit first. It always starts with God's work. So if God has not done that work and he's stirring you today, please don't leave. Please don't leave today until you know this God who is the most humble of beings, who loves you, who gave up glory for your sake and emptied himself and died the worst possible death for you. If you don't know him, if he's not entered into your life, if there's no participation, fellowship with the Spirit, then don't try to do this. Because these commands can only be done. They're only even remotely possible, and we fail and we fail and we fail. But they're only remotely possible by the Spirit of God working within you. But for those of you who are believers, 
All the ifs, as Rob preached last week, become since. Since there's this, since you see this work in your life already, you can do this. You can think and dwell and set your mind on Jesus. You can set your mind like Jesus and you can live out of this. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says as he writes about this particular thing. We're going to end here and then we're going to participate in communion together as we close the service. Moreover, the Christian knows not only that there is this unity in design, this one another among yourselves type of thinking, but that there is a real union between Christ and his people. It's a doctrine never too much thought of, the doctrine that Christ and his members are all one. Hear this. Know you not, beloved, that every member of Christ's church is a member of Christ himself. We are of his flesh and his bones, which is what we're going to participate in right now. Parts of his great mystical body. And when we read that our head is crowned, rejoice, members of his, either feet or hands, whatever you are. Though the crown is not on you, yet being on your head, you share the glory, for you are one with him. See Christ yonder, sitting at his father's right hand, believer. He is the pledge of thy glorification. He is the surety of thine acceptance. And moreover, he is thy representative. Oh, rejoice, believer, when you see your master exalted from the tomb, when you behold him exalted up to heaven. Then, when you see him climb the steps of light and sit on his lofty throne where angels can scarcely reach him, when you hear the acclamation of a thousand seraphs, when thou dost note the loud pealing choral symphony of millions of the redeemed, think... When you see him crowned with light, think that you are exalted too in him, seeing that you are a part of himself. Happy are you if you know this, not only in doctrine, but in sweet experience too. That's what Paul is. He's he's begging us, don't live with a split line. Think this one thing. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.